Where are we going? Welcome to this exclusive podcast produced by Spirit Watch Ministries that will show where life in our darkening times is now turning and how you can avoid the detours of deception through the hope of biblical truth. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 24 warned us over two millennia ago and how urgently we need to heed Him now. Our host is Pastor Rafael Martinez, a seasoned Northwest Indiana-based minister, intercessor, and counter-cult apologist who will help you discern the journey of change we're all on as the last day of the last days now winds down. For more information, check out our Facebook page and our website at spiritwatch.org. Now. Here's Pastor Raphael. Hello, thanks for stopping by and for downloading our program podcast entitled, Where Are We Going? I'm Raphael Martinez, a minister in the Church of God Cleveland Movement, and I'm so glad you took the time to listen in. This podcast is one of the services of Spirit Watch Ministries, an outreach of discernment in our deceptive world that's been ongoing since 1993. You can learn more about us at our website, spiritwatch.org, and keep up to date using our Facebook and YouTube links there on the page as well. And while you're at it, you can invite all your friends, your enemies, neighbors, third cousins, and everyone all points in between to also listen in. We're always looking for new audiences, and we appreciate your help. Now, our podcast is devoted to providing biblical perspectives on the ongoing plunge of the world into the darkness of spiritual deception, as foretold by Bible prophecy and the history of fallen humanity itself. Now, for the last two weeks, we've talked about the old-time deception of cultism in society and how it's been a part of the human condition since our removal from Eden, thanks to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Last week, we summarized how cultism works, who cult leaders are, and how they manage to deceive recruits into their fold by powerful forms of compulsion driven by a supremely cunning persuasion. This week, we want to examine the draw of that persuasion and how this persuasion works out through cultism, especially when its culture and claims are magnified beyond belief by the power of what we call cultic mind control. I know, you hear the words mind control and you start thinking of rumors of brainwashing by social media, dark conspiracies of powerful social elites, or plot lines straight out of fiction involving assassins, spies, sleeper cells, etc etc well i'm not referring to these popular fables i'm speaking about the stark reality of how socially pliable people are no matter what their element might be particularly when they're being seduced by those movements that we call cults you see when it comes to persuasion the battle for the actual control of the human mind is an arena where cult conquests are ruthless and the victims are clueless about the victimization that they just went through I've discovered decades ago that cultism has always involved more than just doctrine. I'm going to say it again. Cultism has always involved more than just doctrine. Keep that in mind as we, as we go on today. You see, this is a plain fact of life that tends to upset a lot of those who feel that understanding cultism is just a matter of theological testing. We've found that getting someone to accept some exotic teaching has never been what any cult exclusively pursues, at all. Many find out too late that a cult's free usage of mind control draws them into a complete subjugation of their wills and lives to follow their agendas, drain their pocketbooks, divide their families, and set them at odds with the world and their own life within them. 
This is in the sharpest contrast to the Christian faith, which allows individual believers freedom of conscience and thought in areas of personal spirituality. With Romans 14.5 and Galatians 5.4-5 stating two of the many New Testament mandates for such freedom. Now, admittedly, there's been a lot of violation of, of that kind of freedom in Christian circles lately simply because people are so polarized toward one degree or another and are afraid to violently disagree with, with over how they should exercise it. That's perhaps one of the reasons why there's so much division and, and inconsistency in the church today as well as why there are so many Christian denominations and divisions uh, within it as well. And yet it is vital to remember that virtually all these various bodies are in full agreement on the basis of Christian doctrine, such as the belief in the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus, a literal heaven to gain and a literal hell to shun, and the need to turn to him for salvation and to him alone. Walk into the next church you see, and you'll behold these foundational doctrines taught there, as they would very likely be taught in the second one you'd visit afterwards. You see, it's these essentials that are non-negotiable and binding upon all true Christians for centuries and they bind us with more of a spiritual union than our divisive age might want us to believe. Now, despite all their claims to the contrary, however, cults have no such unity, despite how much hay they make over being so unified. They resort to a rigidly imposed conformity to an accepted code of cultic conduct. And this conformity is achieved by the cult's incredible ability to control behavior by the control of thought through their ability to master what we call cultic mind control. It's an absolute conditioning of the thoughts and deeds of cult members that is so radically transformative that it leads people to changes in their lifestyle, their values, and their direction, uh, and, their, and their way in life that would have been unthinkable before they became subjects of the cult's indoctrination. Cultic mind control is a foundational part of the persuasion that goes into the deception that cultic leaders resort to as they make new recruits for the new religions. As we've said in reaction, Christians usually go no farther in trying to understand cult groups than by making the comparisons of their doctrinal differences with the Christian faith to draw the boundary lines. Now, that's a serious miscalculation and underestimation that we've found over the years happens all too many times. Don't make that same mistake we beg you. Certainly, doctrinal differences are of fundamental importance, but there are other equally vital points of reference that you must be aware of to create a balanced understanding of what a cult is and, and how it works. And this is because cults don't rely upon doctrinal approaches exclusively in their own recruitment efforts to persuade others. They develop solid relationships with prospects that prepare them for deeper social indoctrination into that group's culture. And it's within these energetic interactions and sharing that the persuasive power of cultic mind control is so powerfully leveraged. That aspect of human culture is often completely underestimated, misunderstood, or ignored by those trying to understand how cultism ensnares its prey. As I've said again and again for years, cultism is more than just doctrine. For cults use unethical forms of manipulation and mind control that compels members to submit to the group's agenda. Our purely theological definition is incomplete without taking into consideration the profoundly authoritarian social control that cultic movements and settings achieve. An important thing to remember is this, 
is that many plainly cultic groups presenting themselves as a church can both deny and also affirm orthodox Christian doctrine quite convincingly and yet will still proudly puff themselves up as the one true church and use whatever relationally convicting tricks they can to turn people into conditioned thinking machines. They don't mind helping God out by justifying the use of flattery, lies, and social encounters that are meant to impose this change upon those they believe that they're helping. When combined with their absolutes of twisted scripture, intrusive community influence, and freely reinterpreted forms of Christian spirituality as a creed to live by, cultic mind control can easily become the deepest personal hole someone can fall into. You can substitute a purely secular form of belief system of any sort, or some sectarian version of a world religion, or a new one altogether, but the hole is just as deep and the same, and many we found never return from it. Having been in a ministry to those impacted by cults since 1983, I've spent untold amounts of time grappling with this issue of cultic persuasion. Seeing people get caught up in cults who I thought should have known better has caused me no end of soul searching. My collegiate study in the latter half of the 1980s of history, and psychology, and sociology in conjunction with pastoral studies of the Bible helped me understand how observable and predictable human behavior is, with God's will providing the greatest of insights. And in 1992, I began to draw more insight on how human predictability plays directly into the persuasive power of cults to leave followers into social and spiritual slavery. The work of Dr. Ron Enroth about churches that abuse provided this, and among the other first resources I read was written by the late Dr. Paul Martin in his book, Cult Proofing Your Kids. He brilliantly and concisely observed that cults use methods that deprive individuals of their ability to make a free choice by the use of deceitful recruitment techniques to recruit and assimilate members and to control members' thoughts, feelings, and behavior as a means of furthering the leader's goals." End quote. Now, it's something almost all outside of cults see, but never quite can put their finger on or understand. And it's that and, and that outwardly cult groups will appear to be upright fellowships, but that a different picture is revealed when one looks into their organization beyond their public image. Their action plans to accomplish what they perceive as righteous living are riddled with a blatantly coercive influence that has brought so much sorrow to our society today. These plans are a powerful form of social engineering that's called thought reform, the process of how a person's thoughts can be changed by influences they never saw coming from the new friends and centers of meeting that they came to trust. Thought reform is at the foundation of cultic mind control. It contains the relational mechanisms that are applied by cults to gain their followers' attentions and commitment. It is first introduced by a period of what's called love bombing. That's the showering of attention and care overtures of friendship and, and positive regard upon recruits who are meant to gain a hearing for their belief, and every effort to engage them in this way is used, be they by free dinners, fun events, rousing discussion groups, or passionate conferences on the weekends. Love bombing is the doorway to the path into the transformation of the subject's heart, mind, and soul. And once you're around savvy, sharp, and seemingly enlightened people who want to spend a lot of time with you, who listen to your questions and your junk 
and who offer answers to questions left dangling everywhere else, you've just become hooked into the all-too-familiar enterprise of cultic thought reform. Three generations ago, psychiatrist Dr. Robert J. Lifton's classic book entitled Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism set forth eight criteria that describe how cultic mind control is used and how it works. You can see how the context of this thought reform takes place within human relationships and group dynamics intentionally brought together by manipulative human leaders in groups. Here are some concise descriptions of these eight marks to help you see how cults control their membership, transforming and changing people in unimaginable ways, controlling behavior by controlling thought and belief. Now see if, the, if these sound familiar, and if they don't, we'll offer a few examples. We'll cover four of these today, and we'll next week describe the other four. By the way, on our website, we offer free and downloadable PDF file copies of Dr. Enroth's books, as well as Lifton's work, and a summary of these eight marks of cult mind control. Visit our Spearwatch Ministries Facebook page or Spearwatch Unchained blog for the links. First of all, Lifton wrote of what he called milieu control that takes place within cults as they indoctrinate their members. Now, milieu control, one of the eight uh, criteria, occurs when a cult recruit is taught to reject their previous understanding of the world and to adopt the group's worldview that effectively redefines for them how to think and how to live as the cult wants them to. This helps them become isolated from any point of reference that reminds them of their past life which might draw them back from the group. It roots them into an alternate view of life that the cult wants them to see things by, which excludes any other perspective other than their own approved one. The late Gwen Shamblin used the sing-song of the Matrix's verbiage to ensure her remnant fellowship slaves saw the world for what she said it was, as you'll hear in this clip. Again, free your mind from the old world, the world of passions and lust, and get what you want when you want it type of world. Get away from that. The world is owned by Satan. Oh yes, it looks good out there. It's full of teachers and doctors and churchgoers. And yet, the first thing you need to know is that that world is full of your enemies. Enemies to you, enemies to God, enemies to this new system, enemies to the spiritual world. And they live to get rid of you. Jesus said that the world will hate you because it hated him. But they live in a system that's based on Satan, who has no source of power and so will never be as strong or as alert or as coordinated as you are, so you don't fear them. Those who are plugged into the true mainframe computer are recharged and given access to more and more energy. Their faces are radiant, their life is like a green shoot, their sleep is sweet, and their dedication is to one God. And therefore, they are the living. We are the living. All other beings smell of death. The second criterion of thought reform is what Lifton termed as a demand for purity. This is the unrelenting pressure upon a cult member to engage in an intensive and continual inner process of self-purification from all that the group deems impure and unholy. 
which is anything the group views as sinful or irrelevant to their own existence or program. This goes way beyond just the most obvious moral and ethical demands that any group might ask its members to avoid any transgressions, but involves a real demand for a crew to purge themselves of any attitude, behavior, or memory that conflicts with their standard of living. To be viewed as holy, or actualized, or perfect, this purity must be evident to uh, all in the cult to see. And this wasn't lost on the youth of the Redmond Fellowship of Cult in 2004, as they were called upon to testify at a family camp, as you hear in this clip. Hi, my name is Zach Lomas from uh, Seattle, Washington. And uh, through this amazing message, uh, I've lost close to 10 pounds now. And um, I've laid down so many things. Uh, lust, slander was huge for me, and pornography. I just laid it all down for God. Praise God. Hi, I'm Jason Watson from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I've lost 105 pounds through this message and just a ton of pride and greed and drugs and alcohol. And I just praise God for this message. And you guys can do it too. Keep it up. Hi, my name is Monica Ruth. I now live in Nashville, Tennessee, and God has graciously and mercifully taken over 30 pounds off my body and greed and pride and just, I'm under authority. Hi, my name is Melissa Cook, and right now I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm 22 years old. God has taken off 40 pounds of greed. Um, I used to complain about everything. I was lazy, depressed, uh, stuck in excessive exercise, and God has shown me true life. A third criterion Lifton calls the cult of confession. This is the supposedly beneficial communal exercises the group conducts in a variety of settings to reinforce submission to cult leadership authority by compelling members to confess their sins and shortcomings openly to confessor figures who will keep a record of them either in actual documentation or a commitment to their own collective group memory. These sessions are personally applied in private discipleship or corporate group meetings. Uh, this confession always results in some form of discipline such as shaming or fear or imposed guilt upon members by leaders regardless of the personal costs and trauma it can cause. This outrageous condition is accepted routinely as a Christian form of spiritual formation, as seen in this testimony by ex-members of the International Churches of Christ. Scott Deal says that if a church member started to question the system, showed signs of independence, his old sins would be brought up and used against him in what's called a breaking session. What you're to do is you're to get an intimate knowledge of their sins, so you know everything they've been doing, and then you get them in a situation where you verbally pistol whip them for several hours. Then you get them to fast and go think about what you and usually a group of other people have said. It's usually, it's almost never an individual private conversation between me and somebody else. It would be me and two or three other leaders or two or three other members on one person. All picking on this person. Yes, and all chewing him out and, and showing their um, disgust for his actions and, and for his life and for whatever. Then the person who is being broken is expected to write a self-criticism, a sin list. This list was obtained from an ex-member in Toronto. I was a ferocious monster. I was deceitful. I was destroying people. I was a phony. 
I was a fraud. They don't come back in tears or just really incredibly ashamed of themselves and really groveling. Then you tell them they're not there yet. And you go through another several hour session of this thrashing. It's your whole existence on a spiritual level, however you define it, that's being brought out, laid out before you, and you're being told that you're nothing and you're lousy and you're not going to make it. You're, you're, you're going to hell. You're sending those people around you to hell. Uh, you're, you're terrible. And the fourth Liftonian mark of thought reform we'll review today is what he calls mystical manipulation. It occurs when a member is confronted by an event or a process involving a spiritual experience that the cult affirms is an extension of their mastery. These are viewed as signs or wonders that could be some inner spiritual illumination or the beholding of some miraculous occurrence in their daily life. In effect, it's another exaltation of the group's authority over the cult member through an allegedly spontaneous incident aimed at inspiring or evoking awe and wonder that's meant to provide convincing proof that the truth claim should be viewed as the truth. Alternate explanations, of course, aren't faith-building and are certainly rejected. Now here we will hear, in closing, a 1986 expose of a New Age channeler named Penny Torres who was supposedly possessed by a spirit named Mafu on demand before paying disciples. And you can hear how this takes place in one specific incident of what you can really actually call mystical manipulation. At this Santa Barbara seminar, Mafu singled out a member of the audience. Builder of a pyramid, you are going away. Have you oh, not oh. been given an opportunity to build a great pyramid? Yes. Out of this country. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh that one. Oh, that. Oh. I didn't know you knew about that one. Yes. I am just unlimited or something. Mafu's believers were bowled over. They didn't realize Torres knew this man and had heard about his project a few hours earlier when she arrived at the seminar. So David Schweitzer is going to build a pyramid in Jamaica? Yeah. Come back to, to Jamaica. Jamaica. We showed Torres the tape. I know a lot of information that he speaks. I also don't know a lot of information that he speaks. It doesn't matter to me, because I'm not here to prove anything to you. Mm -hmm. If you are attempting to prove that this is all fraudulent, and that's the opinion you've gained, I allow you that. Now we hope after these, listening to these examples that you're getting our point. The power of deceiving mind control as wielded by cultic movements is a cold reality that is all too ordinary and observable in our world today. The Bible has foretold of it and explained how it appears in Christian settings in language that is clear and unmistakable. A group, or a church, or a mosque, or a temple, or a synagogue, or a fraternity, or any sort of other group can seem to be so completely biblical or harmless and yet be as socially warped and dangerous as any other imbalanced cult around them. We will set forth the final four marks of cultic mind control in our next podcast a week from today. Until then, we truly hope that these sobering insights into the last day's deception are opening your eyes to the evil that is all around us and is growing by the day, and that will enable you to learn to discern. Thanks once again, and we hope to see you next week. Thanks for listening today as we explore just where are we going. Our prayer is that you have been encouraged and strengthened, and if necessary, challenged in your daily journey through life. 
Jesus is coming. You can fall with the night or you can rise with the sun. The choice is yours. You can email us with questions and comments at feedback at spiritwatch.org. And if you need urgent personal spiritual help, email us at help at spiritwatch.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Please follow our podcasting at our Facebook page and our website at spiritwatch.org. This podcast is a production of Spirit Watch Ministries, taking heed that no man deceives you.